0: The History Channel, original podcast. Sports history this week, June 23rd, 1972. I'm Kalen Jones. President Richard Nixon is a little distracted. A few days earlier, five men paid by Nixon's re-election campaign broke into the Watergate office complex to wiretap the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee. But they got caught. And now, Nixon and his men are scrambling to hide the money trail that leads right back to the Oval Office. That's Nixon talking to his chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, This recorded conversation will eventually become a key piece of evidence in the Watergate trials. The smoking gun that showed the cover-up came from the top. But as president, responsible for signing bills in the law, the same day that recorded conversation takes place, Nixon also puts his signature on the, quote, educational amendments of 1972. He puts out a press statement, but it makes no mention of Title IX of this law whose introduction contains these 37 words. Quote, No person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance.
1: They have the word activity.
0: That is Billie Jean King, tennis legend and feminist icon. If there's anyone who understands the role Title IX played in promoting women's sports, it's her.
1: If that word activity had not been in there, we would not have women's sports scholarships.
0: King told us how it wasn't obvious at all that Title IX would be used to promote gender equality in student athletics.
1: It's really an educational amendment. Title IX, people think it's sports, but it's not. It's really an educational amendment. In
0: 1972, Billie Jean King was the face of women's sports. That year, she had already won the French Open and would go on to win Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. While performing as an elite athlete at the top of her game, she also spearheaded the creation of professional women's tennis. And to her, the passage of Title IX is just one moment in this long struggle for gender equality that she still continues to fight for.
1: How can you ever give up? I can never give up.
0: Today, The passage of Title IX and the trailblazing career of the woman who embodied the struggle for gender equality in sports. How did Billie Jean King use her platform to fight for this goal? And after the passage of Title IX, how did she literally battle for women everywhere? Billie Jean Moffitt grew up in Long Beach, California. With beautiful weather year-round, there were plenty of sports for young kids to choose from in the 1940s and 50s. And Billie Jean chose... baseball. She idolized Yankee slugger Mickey Mantle, and her younger brother Randy would actually go on to become a Major League pitcher. However, Billie Jean's own hopes of becoming a Major League shortstop were crushed at an early age.
1: I knew at nine I wasn't going to be able to because of my gender, which, that was a horrible day.
0: But just a short time later, another athletic opportunity presents itself. Who was the one that introduced you
1: to it, and what was that moment? Oh, I remember clearly. In fifth grade, I was sitting next to Susan Williams, and she said to me, do you want to play tennis? And I said, what's tennis? She says, you don't know what tennis is? I said, I have no idea. What do you do? She says, you get to run, jump, and hit a ball. I go, oh, wow, those are my three favorite things in sports. Yeah, I'll try it.
0: It doesn't take long for Billy Jean to fall in love with the sport just by hitting balls around at the country club where Susan's parents belong.
1: You know, I realized probably as a shortstop, I touched the ball, what, six times in a game. <laughs> and then I went to bat every ninth time. Strike. And I'm like, wow, I can hit 100 balls in like five minutes in tennis. This is amazing. So I was hooked.
0: There are obstacles to getting fully immersed in tennis. At this time, it's still very much a country club sport. Very exclusive, very expensive.
1: My dad was a blue collar guy, you know, firefighter. And my mom was a homemaker Then also started to work to make ends meet.
0: Luckily, Billie Jean's friend Susan introduces her to some public tennis courts in Long Beach, where Clyde Walker, a local coach, was offering free lessons. I'm going to have access
1: to courts and someone to teach me for free? So my parents said, well, we'll take you. We'll find a way. And it being free made all the difference in the world. Her
0: father, however, still makes her pay for her own racket.
1: I saved $8.29 in the mason jar and the shelf, and I said, let's go. And the Brown Sporting Goods in Long Beach. I got my first racket, which was, you know, wine-colored, great color. I love purple. <laughs> and so it had purple strings, and I was so excited.
0: And it only takes one lesson with Clyde Walker to set Billie Jean Moffitt on her path.
1: And when my mom came to pick me up, I go, mommy, mommy, I'm so excited. I found out what I'm going to do with my life. She says, well, that's fine, honey, but you've got homework. She always kept my brother and me very grounded. I go, Mom, you don't get it. This is it. Of course, now I'd use the word destiny. I decided I wanted to be the number one tennis player in the world that day.
0: Billie Jean rises fast. Just five years after that first lesson, she makes her debut at the U.S. Open, then called the U.S. Championships. She loses in the first round, but she does get a write-up in Sports Illustrated, saying she has a devastating American twist service, a lot of strength and stamina, and is definitely one of the most promising youngsters on the West Coast. By her senior year of high school, 1961, Billie Jean is ranked as the fourth best female tennis player in the country. And with help from some local boosters, she's able to travel across the Atlantic for the first time arguably the most important tennis event of the year, Wimbledon. She goes as a solo player, but also competes in the doubles tournament with Karen Hans.
1: Well, first of all, Karen had been there the year before, so she was the vet compared to me because I'm a freshman, (laughs) right? So uh, she said, you know, we can win this tournament. And I go, "Oh, oh, there's no way we can win.
0: If they have any chance of winning, it's not reflected in their accommodations. Wimbledon is still an amateur tournament. There's no prize money, and players are only compensated for some expenses.
1: We just didn't have any money, you know, in those days as amateurs. And we stayed in this one room flat that was, I don't know, about six pounds a week. It it was funny. The person who owned it, Mrs. Gordon, fed us so badly in the beginning, and then we started to do well at the tournament. Then she starts calling my girls, and then she gave us a better breakfast. It was hilarious.
0: They make the finals, facing off against Jan Lehane and Margaret Smith, who had won the Australian Open earlier that year. Billie Jean and Karen are the underdogs.
1: That was one time I didn't feel very much pressure because no one expected us to win except Karen. And of course, that put a little pressure on me, but not really.
0: Whatever her mindset, it pays off. They win the 1961 Women's Doubles Tournament at Wimbledon. Billie Jean throws the ball up into the air and turns to see their landlady, Mrs. Gordon, cheering like crazy from the stands.
1: Karen was right, we did win. It was very exciting. We're the youngest team ever to have won with our ages combined, and we still are to this day.
0: Billie Jean returns home to California, ready to enroll in college. She's now the third ranked women's tennis player in the world, and one would think that the opportunities for scholarships would be limitless.
2: It's just one of those things that was just accepted as the way things were.
0: That's Susan Ware, a historian and author of Game, Set, Match, Billie Jean King, and the Revolution in Women's Sports.
2: Well, of course we don't give athletic scholarships to women. Women don't want to play sports. You know, women shouldn't be playing sports, or there's no career for women in sports, which is true because there wasn't unless they wanted to be phys ed teachers.
0: Billy Jean Moffitt enrolls at Los Angeles State College, which was free to California residents. But there are still expenses to be paid. You weren't on scholarship. I mean, what, what was that like?
1: Well, I had two jobs. I thought I was living large. I was a playground director and passing out equipment in the gym. But, you know, 20 miles away, Arthur Ashe was on a full scholarship at UCLA. And Stan Smith was on a full scholarship at USC. And all three of us became the number one players eventually in the world. But it was a very different world because of my gender, and it just wasn't right.
0: Billie Jean continues to establish herself as one of the best women's tennis players in the world. The next year at Wimbledon, she defeats top-ranked Margaret Court in the first round of the singles tournament. While she doesn't go on to win the whole thing, she does repeat as doubles champs with Karen Hance. She meets her future husband, Larry King, at the library at Los Angeles State. And soon after, decides to leave school early, committing herself full time to tennis.
2: Now, in the third set, Billie Jean serves for match point. Beautiful shot, and the Wimbledon title is hers. A 22 year old California girl receives the trophy from Princess Marina. Mrs. Billie Jean King of America, the new queen of tennis.
0: She wins Wimbledon for the first time in 1966, then repeats in 1967, also winning the U.S. championships. But the next year, 1968, would see a seismic shift in the tennis world. Up until then, tennis was an amateur sport, meaning, again, the top tournaments offered no prize money. There were smaller professional tournaments run outside the system that did offer prize money, but once you went pro, the amateur, more prestigious tournaments became off-limits. That is, until 1968, the start of what is known as the Open Era. Now, those top events, the U.S. Open, the French Open, the Australian Open, and Wimbledon would offer prize money and tennis players were free to play for profit wherever they wanted. While this move was beneficial for the overall health of the sport, for Billie Jean King and for all women players, the end result was less clear.
1: When tennis became professional, my former husband Larry, Larry King, not that Larry King, said to me, you know, the men will want you to go away. And I said, no, they won't. They're my friends. And we get along. We, you know, go to dinners. We practice together. He says, Billy, the guys will think every dime belongs to them and nothing for you. I said, no. And he was right. And I was wrong. Numbers can talk.
0: Susan Ware again.
2: Prize money for men and for women in the same tournament. It would be like 12 to 1. And the women were bringing in just as many fans to the
1: stands as the men were. I won Wimbledon, and Rod Laver won Wimbledon, and Rod Laver got 2,000 pounds, and I got 750 pounds. So right off the bat, I go, oh no, we're not going to get equal prize money. That's another fight we're going to have to deal with.
0: But of course, in the late 1960s, the fight around women's rights isn't just contained to tennis.
2: Many more women were working, more women were going to college. The divorce rate was going up as marriages changed in relation to different circumstances. And it was disturbing to a lot of people. In
0: 1965, the Supreme Court rules that birth control is a constitutional right. Feminism is becoming a more commonplace term, even if it carried a negative connotation to many. And Susan Ware explained that athletics were in a unique position to contribute to this overall movement.
2: One of the things that looking at the history of sports allows us is that it's something that everybody cares about in American society. And it's a consciousness raising tool that makes the ideas of feminism, especially ideas of fairness and equity, come into focus in a way that if you're talking about women in politics or women in business. It all seems kind of fuzzy and murky. But when you see it at play in sports, it's often clearer.
0: In this moment, Billie Jean King asks herself what she could contribute. She's hesitant to even utter the word feminism in interviews, as it might draw too much negative attention from the male-dominated press. At this time, King is also privately struggling with her sexuality causing self-doubt and leading her to question her role in this movement. But as a tennis player, after two years of women being treated as second class in the open era, she knows she has to do something.
1: You know, followers choose leaders. Leaders don't choose followers. Even when I was in elementary school, they go, Billy, you do it. Billy, you do it. Or you be the captain. Or you do this. They're always putting me in that position of leadership. And the same thing happened in tennis. The players said, no, you do it. You're the one. I go, I'm not the one. Maybe you should do it. Or you, No, no, no. You're the one. So finally, I just decided I was going to embrace it 100% and go for it. And just step up, be a leader, don't mess around. Go for it, Billy. In
0: 1970, while Billie Jean King plays in tournaments around the world... She's also heavily involved in planning a brand new professional tennis tour. A series of tournaments, just for women. At first, other players are hesitant to join. Who knows what would happen if they started their own tour? Could they be blacklisted? Banned from the Open events? The moment comes in September of 1970. The Pacific Southwest Open is about to take place in Los Angeles. The purse for the men is $65,000, with a guaranteed check regardless of how well they played. The women have a $7,500 purse and will only be paid if they make the quarterfinals. Nine women decide to boycott this event in Los Angeles. They're in Houston instead, brought there by Gladys Heldman, the publisher of World Tennis Magazine, to sign a deal. Each player signs a $1 contract with Heldman's Magazine. But the contract is really for a brand new tour. With a sponsorship from Philip Morris, it would be known as the Virginia Slims Tour, and the women would become known to history as the Original Nine.
1: That is the birth of women's professional tennis. So every time a person gets a check, a woman gets a check. I don't care if it's at the smallest tournament in the world or at the biggest, where you make a you know a couple million or more. That day, September 23rd, 1970, that is the reason they get a check.
0: The original nine, led by Billie Jean King, also decides on three core goals.
1: Number one is that any girl born in this world, if she's good enough, would have a place to compete. Number two, that we'd be appreciated for our accomplishments, not only our looks. And number three, most importantly to us, of course, was to be able to make a living playing what we love. We love tennis, but we want to be able to make a living.
0: The Virginia Slims Tour is a massive success. That first year, the women play in 19 different Virginia Slims tournaments, with prize money totaling $310,000.
1: I remember the media would always ask me, well, do you think it's going to grow? And what do you think? And I said, are you kidding? We're going to be playing for millions of dollars all over the world. And they're looking at me like, seriously? I said, yeah. But we had to have this picture in our brains, this painting in our brains that this is it. We're going to keep reaching for the stars. We're going to keep fighting like crazy.
0: The next couple of years are extremely taxing on Billie Jean King. She's playing more tennis than ever, nursing a chronic knee issue, while also serving as the de facto spokesperson of the Virginia Slims Tour. Really, the spokesperson of all women's tennis. Really, all of women's sports. How did you avoid, you know, losing yourself yourself? who you are at your core in the midst of taking on so much?
1: I don't know. It's a great question. Um, Maybe I did lose myself for a while because of it.
0: King moves closer to achieving her goal for women's tennis players to earn a living. But it keeps her busier than ever. She and her husband barely see each other. There's no time to have a typical family life. When it comes out that King had an abortion in 1971, she's accused of putting her career over her duty to be a mother. But that same year, she becomes the first female athlete to earn $100,000 annually.
2: And in what seems totally bizarre, got a congratulatory call from President Richard Nixon.
0: Hello? Hello, oh, Mr. President? Yes, I just wanted to congratulate you on your great successes this year. And uh, I'm glad to see a fellow Californian gets over the 100000 well, Nixon, well. as we learned earlier, signed Title IX in the law the next year, 1972. The legislation had been a long time coming, but was far from inevitable. Susan Ware explains.
2: The roots I see to Title IX are very much in the civil rights legislation of 1964 and 1965.
0: The Civil Rights Act of 1964, while remembered today largely for its role in the civil rights movement, also banned gender discrimination in the workplace.
2: A lot of people didn't even think that sex discrimination existed. It was sort of like a a joke. But one limit, which became apparent in the couple years afterwards, was that it did not apply to educational institutions.
0: This is why the educational amendments were necessary.
2: You go back and you look at the way that women athletes were treated in the 60s and early 70s, it was just accepted as the way things were. Nobody questioned why in a school boys' teams got 99% of the sports budget and maybe the girls' teams got 1% for a play day where they didn't even keep score because, oh, competition for girls, that's bad. or women shouldn't be sweating when they're playing athletics. That doesn't look good. And there were all these stereotypes and assumptions that women couldn't play sports, didn't want to play sports, that women were too weak to run a marathon, or that they would collapse in tears if they lost a race, or that their ovaries would drop out if they, you know, (laughs) swam too fast. All these stupid ideas that people had about women's physical capabilities.
0: There are a few people credited with pushing Title IX through Congress. Dr. Bernie Sandler, who led a series of class action lawsuits drawing attention to gender discrimination in higher education, along with Congresswomen Edith Green and Patsy Mink, who, working with Senator Birch Bayh, crafted the legislation that would eventually become Title IX. After months of debate, the bill passes, and is signed into law by Richard Nixon on June twenty third, 1972. But, as we heard earlier, the role of Title IX in athletics isn't immediately clear.
2: Very gradually does it begin to occur to people that some of the most glaring inequities in educational institutions were in the area of sports. And there was a very influential three-part series in Sports Illustrated in June of 1973.
0: Ware found that the third part of that series, titled Sport is Unfair to Women, specifically lays out the potential Title IX could have for women's sports. It's one of the first times this connection is made in the mainstream media. And just 10 days after this issue of Sports Illustrated comes out, Billie Jean King finds herself taking the next step in this same struggle. She's in the Gloucester Hotel in London. Wimbledon is set to begin, and in the days leading up to the tournament, King is hard at work, organizing the other women players. She's tired of running the Virginia Slims tour. Her body is tired from playing more tennis than anyone should the last three years. Can you take me inside? Like, do you remember what the room oh, looked like? Oh, I can like? remember
1: everything. I can remember it so clearly. But first of all, I told all the media were in the lobby and they're kind, of, oh, you guys going to boycott? I see so you're having a meeting. I said, I've been telling you, we're going to try to get an association started.
0: Her goal is simple. Create a women's tennis association, an organization that could bring all women's tennis players under one umbrella. She gets a meeting room at the hotel brings in 65 of the women about to play at Wimbledon to hear what she has to say.
1: I had Betty Stove, who we called Dutch Shoes, who's a great player from Holland. Guard the door. Don't let anybody out until we have an association or not. If we don't, we don't. This is it. I can't do anything more. I am exhausted trying to make this happen.
0: At the conference room at the Gloucester Hotel in London, Billie Jean King makes her case. She actually has Rosie Casals, a fellow tennis player, record the meeting on tape.
1: So I said, OK, do you have the recorder? And she's sitting right next to me to the left. She goes, yeah, I've got it. I got it. It didn't work. I was trying to record history. So uh, just like a podcast would be today, right?
0: So while we don't have a recording of the meeting, we know the outcome. That day, the Women's Tennis Association, or WTA, is born.
1: Most of us really didn't under, They said yes, but they didn't, didn't know what they are saying yes to, I don't think, really. I, you can t- tell. It's, most people can't visualize something ahead of time. Once they, they go, oh, this is what you were talking about.
0: A few days later, Billie Jean King wins Wimbledon for the fifth time. First in women's singles, then in doubles. But she doesn't attend the Wimbledon Ball after the tournament ends. She has to focus on something larger. I thought to
1: myself, if I lose this match, this will be the rest of my life.
0: That match is the Battle of the Sexes. A few months earlier, King had agreed to face Bobby Riggs, a 55-year-old former number one men's player who had become an outspoken, self-proclaimed, quote, male chauvinist. The Battle of the Sexes was a $100,000 winner-take-all match at the Houston Astrodome. Part publicity stunt, part serious athletic matchup between two professionals. Just a few days after Wimbledon, King and Riggs hold a press conference, exchanging banter like two boxers before a prize fight.
1: Billy really, you yeah. mean to say you think I put women down? <laughs> Is that what you're saying uh, that I'm doing all the time? Yes, I do. I don't think you give us credit for having any brains at all. Oh. Or any logic. You know, that's fine, because if that's where you're at, then that's okay. Well, I get along
2: very well with a lot of
0: girls. <laughs> Regardless of the circus-like atmosphere, King is terrified of what would happen if she lost.
1: You see that that lady over there? She lost to that old guy. Um, I don't know, you know what their names are, but she lost. She lost. She lost. That's all they're going to say. Title Nine had just been passed the year before, and we just formed our WTA three months before that. I had to beat him. I mean, it was no athletic feat to beat somebody my dad's age. That didn't mean anything from an athletic point of view, but from a cultural and social change, it was everything.
0: On Match Day, September 20th, 1973, Susan Ware is watching from home.
1: I was so
2: nervous. Um, It was my second year of graduate school at Harvard. So imagine a small apartment in Cambridge (laughs) furnished with secondhand furniture and I was just on the edge of my seat. It just felt like so much was riding on it.
1: He was perspiring a lot, and I thought it was a nervous a nervous sweat. There's a difference between nervous sweat and just a sweat sweat. And I could see that it was a nervous sweat. So I thought, well, that's good. At least he's nervous, too.
0: In front of over 30,000 spectators inside the Astrodome and 90 million watching from home, With Howard Cosell and Rosie Cassell's broadcasting, the battle of the sexes begins.
1: I felt the first set was going to set the tone. The court was laid down over a basketball court that, for some reason, was dead. It was just dead, but I thought, you know, that'll help me, because I'll move up to the ball faster.
0: Winning the first set was huge. And she never really looked back. King won three sets in a row, beating Riggs decisively. Let's watch
2: Bobby Riggs. perfect
1: You know when we shook hands? He said, I really underestimated you.
2: When she won the relief. It was just amazing, and it really did feel like women won.
1: You cannot believe how many women have told me how it changed their life to believe in themselves for the first time. And then the men come up to me, and they're more reflective usually, and they still do to this day, how watching that match changed their lives and how they think about women, how they think about themselves. A lot of times they're the ones crying. The women are, like, exuberant. And even President Obama, when I first met him, he brought up the fact that he'd watched the King Riggs match when he was 12, and that now he has two daughters, and how it it made him think about how to raise his daughters differently than if he had not seen that match. He said, it made me think about a lot of things. So it's amazing how it affected people.
2: Maybe there will be some other moments, just where the country comes together to watch a woman playing sports. That is what was so unusual. This was a time, this is what everybody was talking about. And this is what she wanted. And she came through. I mean, she always says pressure is a privilege, but not everybody can, uh, can handle it in that way.
0: Seven weeks after the battle is won, King goes to Capitol Hill to testify on behalf of the Women's Educational Equity Act, a tool that could be used to enforce Title IX.
1: I knew these guys wanted to meet me because I beat Bobby Riggs.
0: (laughs) King explained how she felt disadvantaged as a young girl, as a college athlete, as an amateur player, and as a professional. There's no recording of this hearing, but King did have this to say, quote, People try to separate sports from everyday life, and that it's just one part of life. I do not know why we have always done that. I do not know where it started. But we put sports up there in the clouds someplace, and it is not. It is a part of everyday living. The early 1970s proved to be a pivotal time for women's sports.
2: All of a sudden, American society is realizing that women can be athletes, and women should be athletes, and they should have opportunities that are commensurate with what men are given. And here you have this charismatic public figure who is making that point both with what she says and how she plays, and it is just phenomenal.
0: Billie Jean King retired in 1983. Following a Hall of Fame tennis career that included 39 major titles, she continued her career as an activist for women and eventually for the LGBTQ movement. In 1981, King was publicly outed through a lawsuit brought by a former romantic partner.
1: It was horrible. It was horrific. I mean, I was outed. I lost all my endorsements in 24
0: hours. Despite the traumatic exposure of King's private life, she ultimately embraced her identity— and made it a key part of her advocacy work.
1: But as a gay woman, it's taken a long time to get there, to be comfortable in my skin.
0: Today, at 78 years old, Billie Jean King hasn't slowed down a step.
2: 50, almost 60 years after she burst onto the scene as a tennis player, we still care about her and she is still having an impact. And that's pretty unusual for a public figure, sports or otherwise.
0: King continues to champion equity in sports through both advocacy and hands-on leadership. She's a minority owner of the Los Angeles Dodgers, Los Angeles Sparks, and the National Women's Soccer League's Angel City FC. Just days before we spoke, the U.S. women's national soccer team secured equal pay to their male counterparts for the first time. What was your reaction to that? And what does that say about how far we've come and where we can still go.
1: Well, they stuck together, number one, so that's fantastic. You gotta have the equality first, but then we've gotta make sure that we keep developing at the grassroots level. Give, giving the children a chance to play soccer, give them chances to go to college, give them chances to be pros, give them chances, maybe become executive director of one of the associations. You, know, you never know. It's pretty
0: awesome what's happening. Do you think this is all a result of Title IX? Does any of this happen without Title IX being in effect?
1: No, without Title IX, this would not happen because the women would not have had the opportunities to play, to be coached, to be able to train at better facilities. But no, there's a lot of challenges for the future because
0: women.
1: still are way behind do you realize in high school women today still have less opportunities than the boys did in 1972 so we have a long long way to go
0: we do we do but you know you helped kick start a lot of it getting changed and, you know there's a lot of progress that still needs to be made but you know Billie Jean thank you so much
1: thanks a lot Kaylin. I really hope you do well
0: I appreciate that Thanks for listening to Sports History This Week. For moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. Special thanks to our guests, Billie Jean King, a champion of tennis and of equality, and Susan Ware, historian and author of Game, Set, Match, Billie Jean King and the Revolution in Women's Sports. This episode was produced by Ben Dixstein, story edited by me, Kaylin Jones, And sound design by Bill Moss. Sports History This Week is also produced by David Ingber and Cooper McKim. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn. And our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Sports History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week.